The original sense of addiction involved being bound over, dedicated, either legally or spiritually, to devote one's life, plunge in. I had researched this. Stice had asked whether I believed in ghosts. It always seemed a little preposterous that Hamlet, for all his paralyzing doubt about everything, never once doubts the reality of the ghost never questions whether his own madness might not, in fact, be unfeigned. Stice had promised something boggling to look at. That is, whether Hamlet might be only feigning, feigning. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Walpurgisnacht, the Witch's Sabbath, April 30th, 2022. You probably had wondered, when shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, and when the battle's lost and won? Oops, that's the wrong play. But tonight, in fact, for our spring edition of the Seasonal Book Club, we shall discuss our first play, the Tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, written by William Shakespeare sometime between 1599 and 1601. It's Shakespeare's longest play with over 29,500 words. Set in Denmark, the play depicts Prince Hamlet and his revenge against his uncle Claudius, who murdered Hamlet's father in order to seize the throne and marry Hamlet's mother. Hamlet is considered among the most powerful and influential works of world literature with a story capable of seemingly endless retelling and adaptations by others. It was one of Shakespeare's most popular works during his lifetime and still ranks among his most performed, topping the performance list of the Royal Shakespeare Company and its predecessors in Stratford-upon-Avon since 1879. It has inspired many other writers, including Goethe, Dickens, Joyce, Iris Murdoch. It has been described as the world's most filmed story after Cinderella. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now how abhorred in my imagination it is. Hello, everyone. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Doing really well. Welcome to everyone. Glad to be here. Hi, guys. Hi. So, just uh, I'm curious to know what you both did in terms of like how did you spend your time uh, with the idea of playing with Hamlet over the season of the spring? Um, let's start with you, SJ. I know that I had a big plan of all these films that I was going to watch, and then I ended up not really going down that route but you know tell me what what did you do yeah i did i mean i was excited right out of the gate um and i watched mel gibson's hamlet um and that's the one that i that i watched you know right with my initial excitement start to finish and really got into it and then i had plans to watch a few more um i did watch the first you know act of the kenneth Branagh hamlet and then that kind of faded on me 
Um, and then I bought the play at the bookstore here, the English bookstore here, and I didn't open it, but I have it, been holding it. So um, <laughs> that's what I did. And um, I took, you know, the Mel Gibson one is the one that really just I spent the most time with and like I said, engaged with and took some notes on and everything. So I really liked Mel. I thought he was a perfect Hamlet. And, you know, who else was excellent in that was the Ophelia, Ophelia in that adaptation is... Um, Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And she was excellent in it. And Ian Holm was in it. He's really good. Ophelia's dad. Um, but yeah, um, Glenn Close plays um, uh, uh, Hamlet's mom. So there were some really uh, high level actors in, in that one. And I thought Mel was a perfect Hamlet because it's the edge of insanity, right? <laughs> And, and, you know, maybe even going through into insanity. And that's kind of what Mel, you know, you see any interview with Mel Gibson, he looks nuts when he talks. He's got this wild nut, you know, kind of craziness in his eyes and in the way he speaks. So that's what I did. Do you have a sense of what year that was that the Mel Gibson, I saw it, but I saw it at the moment it was out, maybe on VHS. 1990 was the release date. So probably, uh, I'm guessing shot in 89, 90. You know, would be my guess. Franco Zeffirelli. Oh, is director. that the guy who did Romeo and Juliet, the famous one? Um, no, the one with um, with um, Leo DiCaprio. No. Um, the yeah, one no, with you're in, be... the, in the late in the late sixties. Yes, that's him. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. him. The famous okay. one from the, in nineteen sixty eight. That is uh, Franco Zeffirelli. He's he's known for um, the Taming of the Shrew. Romeo and Juliet. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. There's other films I've, I've known him for, Franco Zaffarelli. But yeah, that's him. With the thought that I had when I started thinking about the films, so there's the famous one with Laurence Olivier, I think. Yeah. But did you, did it, I looked at a few, but I didn't watch any. The closest one I got to is the David Tennant one that had um, uh, Jean-Luc Picard, what his, yeah. <laughs> whatever. The BBC, it was a BBC yeah. about 10, five but years ago or so, yeah. The, the interesting thing is that um, they, they changed it a little bit, like, uh, that's the interesting thing, like, it's, like, when Kenneth Branagh does his more like a Russian, like, uh, maybe 18th century, maybe 19th century kind of thing, and then, the, like, the BBC one was more of, like, a World War II time period. So, like, the time period and the adaptation is, it doesn't really have an effect on it, but it kind of does. And that's one of the things I was thinking about. Um, but what about you, Zanor? How did you bond with Shakespeare and Hamlet over the spring? Um, yeah, I read the I read the play again. Um, and then I also, uh, I saw three movies. Um I watched the Laurence Olivier one from 48. I've seen that before. And so I watched that again. That's, that's always interesting. And then I watched, um, uh, there's a Russian one from 1964, which is really interesting. Like, it, it, like Shostakovich does the music. Um, and it's like, uh, the sets are, are amazing, the sets and costumes and everything. And, 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 but it's in Russian, so I'm reading it. I'm reading the subtitles, right? Um, so that was interesting also. And then, and then I watched uh, Richard Burton's um, just stage performance, right? Which I made into a, into a movie. And that's, 
that's excellent like the the uh the stage is just like stripped down to a few chairs and tables that's it they have almost no set at all no costumes or just they're just um wearing suits or just regular clothes and it's and it's just full-on acting right it's uh it, it's great um and that's uh that's over uh three hours long that that one to watch um, but uh that that gave me a real sense of the language more than the other ones um and what I thought was really interesting watching the movies is that, uh, like, when you read the, the play, there's no indication at all how these lines are supposed to be read, you know? Like, the, it's just, they just get interpreted, right? Like, 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 Shakespeare didn't write any other direction about how you're supposed to read these or anything. Um, so, so you see all these different people playing Hamlet, and they've all got a different take on it. And sometimes their take changes the meaning of of what he's saying you know like uh um like, like for example in the uh in the uh Laurence Olivier one where uh, Hamlet's talking about uh like the, the uh, to be or not to be speech right and he's saying um to sleep and then he and then Laurence Olivier says like to sleep perchance to dream like it's it's like when he says that line it's like a he's so it's it's like a revelation this idea that he won't just die and sleep forever like maybe he'll have a dream and the way he reads that line is like it's just like a a shock you know but then if you watch um if you watch richard burton do that line he just like to sleep perchance to dream and it's not it, it's a completely different um, way that he acts it. Not not any worse. Like it's it's amazing as well. But uh, um, his interpretation just completely changes the meaning of uh, of what uh, what Hamlet is saying. And so we have no we have no real way of knowing which interpretation is right, or if if Shakespeare even intended a, a right interpretation, or, or or what you know. So. I found I found that was really fascinating watching these uh, movies. Well, I had that kind of thought with Polonius a little bit because I couldn't tell if he's actually wise or if he's more like a a pedant or just like a a bumbling fool. Is how uh, how Hamlet seems like you can him. Yeah. play him different ways, right? Because right. like um like the the BBC version, he's definitely played he's he's an intelligent bumbler like there's a lot of wordplay so my my the what i did was i i listened to the play like a couple times and and then i immediately started thinking about it deeper than i ever ever had because like part of that is i think when you watch the movie you can get things the language is less of a barrier because um they're they're emoting with their arms and their faces and the scenery and all that kind of stuff. Um, but by listening to it, I didn't have any of that. I just, and so after doing, going through it a couple of times, then the language became less and less of a barrier as far as like, like there's a lot of words and oftentimes they're not used the way that we're used to hearing them. Um, but so there were a, a number of things that I started thinking about that I'd never thought about. Like, like at first I was wondering, is there any possibility that the, the ghost is not real? 
Like, yeah. I wanted to go down that route, and it's like, no, that that ghost is real. There are all these other people there seeing the ghost, and then there is also the the madness too, because there seems like something slightly illogical about, like, you know, he he's feigning madness, but it seems like he gets carried away with it, and then like, oh, he's he's not feigning. He's he's actually mad. I mean, yeah, I've been uh, looking deeply into that. Like, uh, um, it, yeah, it's so it's so amazing to uh, go down that rabbit hole. Like, uh, um, so I was, I was reading a, a book by. Do you guys know uh, Frances Yates? She, yeah, um, she's famous for her uh, research on the uh, uh, Renaissance, right? Um, but she has this book called the uh, the Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age, and she's in her work like this book and the art of memory and then she's got another book on uh, on shakespeare and uh she what she points out is that uh um uh when shakespeare was 19 years old like in his kind of formative period from from 19 to 22 he was in london at the same time when uh, giordano bruno came to England. And that was when Bruno was teaching his art of memory and his whole sort of like a um, reform of uh, like the Egyptian religion that he was he was into, like his whole sort of hermetic view was was coming through at that time and really influencing all kinds of people. And and, sh- and Shakespeare was right in the thick of it, like at, at 19, like he, he was like a he was like Stephen Dedalus, you know, like a, a, at that time, you know, or, or, or Joyce, I guess, you know, it's like he's just sucking, sucking up all this kind of hermeticism. Like it was just in the air at the time, really exciting time, you know. Um, so Bruno was only there for, uh, I think, it about uh, three years, but he was just like uh, he, he caused a sensation at that time. Um, and so for Frances Yates, um, she thinks his visit and just this sort of um, atmosphere of this hermeticism that that really came through in the Elizabethan age, um, just it, um, Shakespeare is just drenched in that, you know, it's like that's uh, um, so, so she thinks that uh, I think, it, I don't think anybody can uh, dispute this, right? It's like, Hamlet's character is is melancholic, right? He's a, he's he's like the the archetype of a of a melancholic uh, person, right? Um, but in that time, um, melancholy had two different senses to it, right? Um, and this is she's saying this is all coming from Agrippa's book, you know? Like the, I think we talked about that before, like the three books of occult philosophy, and. If you read that, um, it says that uh, there are two types of melancholy, and this is this is where it gets into his madness, right? And so it's like, um, what kind of melancholy is Hamlet? There's an inspired sort of melancholy which will lead to um, prophecy and and truth, basically, right? But then there's another kind of melancholy which is just like a um, it could be evil possession, right? And so hamlet when he meets the ghost there are lines in there where he's questioning if the ghost is the real ghost of his father or just like a uh, like he says this he says uh, be thou a spirit of health or a goblin damned bring with thee airs from heaven or blasts from hell 
And he says, uh, the spirit that I have seen may be the devil and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy as he, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. Um, so he's questioning, Hamlet is questioning that it, it, his, uh, his madness and the ghost that he sees might be from basically the devil. It might be this, this sort of black form of melancholy. And that's why he ends up uh, testing the ghost with the play. Um, so he, 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 he puts, well, he, he gets the players to perform in front of the king and adds some lines um, that make it even closer to the situation with uh, his uncle and his father. And uh, he checks the reaction of the king. Um, and so he knows from the reaction of the king, not only that the king actually did murder his, his uh, father, but, uh, but that the ghost was true. It was a, it was a true ghost. And, and his own melancholy was an inspired type of melancholy. Um, just, yeah, just to say on that, I, um, the, just to say that Mel Gibson Hamlet, it's more of like a, I don't know, Renaissance fair, you know, a Renaissance fair kind of setting. And I think that's a great point, Doug, about the different, you can just import this anywhere you go. There was one Hamlet that I wanted to watch by Ethan that had Ethan Hawke in the lead. It was like a modern day New York City, but the service, uh, I couldn't access access it in the service that I was using to acquire it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought the ghost stuff was just pretty straightforward that um, there was a ghost. I like the point you're making, Znor, about maybe it was a ghost that was pretending to be his father. But I got the sense pretty quickly, and this is my first introduction to Hamlet. I actually, I mean, I know about it because it's a cultural touchstone, but I hadn't ever um, uh, dived so deeply into it as I had here. And so that was kind of cool to be kind of a first introduction to the full extent of the plot and the full extent of everything. Um, it reminded me of um, uh, some of these films, you know, it's kind of like these modern action films where there's a a joust at the end, which is like the climax between the main character and a rival, a fight to the death, kind of like Dune, the Dune plot. I can see how Dune would be influenced by this because there's like kingdoms and families and rivalries and, you know, but um, to come back, I, yeah, I mean, if you take the ghost stuff and just set it aside and you maybe treat it just like a trigger, like this is just a plot uh, construction to trigger up these underlying human emotions and those emotions being, you know, namely uh, grief. So it's a play about grief, obviously, that you open up with the loss of a king and a father. Uh, it's a play about uh, uh, greed and desire uh, because, you know, you're having the maneuvers to capture power. So, you know, power and greed, let's say. And then I think the understated plot line that it's, very clear when you read when you see the Kenneth Branagh uh, Hamlet, the, the first act of that. Ophelia, it's a much deeper story, the Ophelia Hamlet love story, um, than it than is in the Mel Gibson version. And I think that's a whole area that you could really focus the play just on Ophelia and like, you know, uh, patriarchy, uh, women, uh, lust and love and kind of the power of that breaking through no matter the social condition. And then the last thing I'll just say, and like her heartbreak, right? Because they're in love and then she can't see him. And then she's kind of gaslit. And as Hamlet is fighting this kind of power um, play for to re this revenge side of what Hamlet's committed to, the love with Ophelia gets 
falling apart. And that's sort of part of the major wreckage and the sad events of this plot. But just the last thing I wanted to say on the point of um, how you can do trickery with film and the idea of the crafting a Hamlet uh, that's fresh in terms of the choices actors are making. With film, you can even cut in flashbacks. And this is what Kenneth Branagh does. Like there's scenes where uh, Ophelia and Hamlet, there's these like risque, you know, lovemaking scenes. And I was like, damn. So he's really saying that like they were really kind of banging each other out aggressively, you know? And I didn't get that from, from the, the Mel Gibson. It was, that was less clear, but Hamlet, uh, Brana's cutting in all of this other stuff to really add texture and a whole different backstory. So uh, anyhow, that's, those are some of my thoughts uh, on it. And um, I guess one other thing I want to introduce now, I've got the quote list. As I watched it, I wrote down all of these references. There's like 15 to um, that are culturally important that come from Hamlet that when I watched it, I was like, damn, that's Hamlet. Damn, that's Hamlet. So this took, this was, I mean, just what you're saying, Doug, earlier, this is like some kind of major er work for our culture, you know, an er text in many ways. What's so, what's interesting is that um, one of the things, so after I, I listened to the play a few times, then I got a biography and Shakespeare biographies are difficult because if you speak with any authority, then um, you're just blowing smoke because there's not enough records to really speak with too much authority. There is, you can, you can speculate. Um, there, there are documents and you can, you know, you can do some history there, but um, there's a lot of gaps and missing pieces as far as what the records offer. But um, there were a lot of new words introduced in Hamlet that weren't in any of his plays before, and there were also a lot of new words that there just is no record of in written language before Hamlet, too. So, like, this was definitely... So in, in this bio that I read by Stephen Greenblatt, and I think he... And it's the Norton Anthology of Literature, and he's a Shakespearean scholar. Um, and his his bio is, is pretty good. It's all this might have happened. It's it's plausible that this you know, <laughs> it's all couched in those kind of terms. Um, but the thing that I learned that I didn't realize. So one of the things in terms of pop culture, SJ is there's this book that came out maybe a year ago or two years ago called Hamnet. And William Shakespeare's son um, is named Hamnet, and he died. Um, and I don't know if they know how he died, but he died when he was eleven. And so you get we get all those kind of pieces in in Joyce in the library scene. And I wanted right, to right. say, um, <laughs> you know how uh, you were saying that he verifies the ghost is real by by the play and uh, his uncle's behavior but i think somebody re rebuts uh steven in the library and said well how does he know shouldn't he be asleep <laughs> well, i think that was in the, in the well, library so that again what how does he know <laughs> how does how does the king know that it was his brother because wasn't he sleeping Oh, oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Well, he's a I ghost. I don't know. He's got a ghost eye view, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a ghost yet. He was just a sleeping king. Um, yeah. But so the thing that I learned in this was that this wasn't an original play, that there was, there was a Hamnith 
before an amleth an amleth yeah yeah that's i i've got it here actually it's a um there's a book called uh, hamlet's mill do you guys know this yes it's a famous book about uh the nature of archaic history something like this is that right or or, or what yeah it's basically it's basically looking at mythology and saying how it's um like world mythology like a combination of all kinds of different stories and and myths and connecting it to the stars you know yes. connecting it to the uh um the procession cycle yes um and so this is this is the the this the kernel of this book is is hamlet right um and uh these guys are saying that uh um that story that you just talked about um doug it's it's by this guy called Saxo Grammaticus, who is right. Yeah, his... don't you love that name, Saxo the Grammatical? <laughs> Saxo Grammaticus, and he 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 was from uh, 1150 to 1216. So sometime sometime within his lifespan, he wrote this book, which is it's from it's from this book called Gesta Danarum, and you read and and so in in Hamlet's Mill, um, they just reprint it like translate it and then and then uh and print a lot of it and it, it it's it's full on like just read here i'll just read the first uh part of this well it says the story begins with the feats of orvindil who is amletus's father amlet it's amleth or if you, like you take the h and put it at the uh beginning of the word it's hamlet right um so amleth's father especially his victor over king cole of norway which drove Orvendel's brother, Fengo, strung with jealousy to murder him. Then he took the wife of the brother he had butchered, capping unnatural murder with incest. And then, then it talks about Amleth. So Hamlet, Amleth beheld all this, but feared lest too shrewd a behavior might make his uncle suspect him. So he chose to feign dullness and pretend an utter lack of wits. This cunning course not only concealed his intelligence, but ensured his safety. Every day he remained in his mother's house utterly listless and unclean, flinging himself on the ground and bespattering his person with foul and filthy dirt. His discolored face and visage smutched with slime denoted foolish and grotesque madness. All he said was of a piece with these follies. All he did, he savored of utter lethargy. And then, and then it goes on, this story goes on, like there's three ways the king, um, so his, his Hamlet's uncle, um, tries to test him, tries to break him out of his madness because um, the king is suspecting that he's just playing mad. So at one time, they try to lure him in the forest with this beautiful woman and hope that she'll break him down within the act of lovemaking, which it, it doesn't work. And then the next time is he, so that's Ophelia, right? And then the next, the next time is um, with his mother, just privately with his mother talking to his mother. And then they hide somebody in the straw floor to, to listen to their conversation. And then Hamlet discovers him just poking around in the straw. He suspects that somebody's there. He pokes around this, the straw. He feels a lump and then just stabs it, stabs it, um, cuts the guy up into a bunch of different pieces, and then uh, throws it to through a, a, a sewer pipe, and then it's fed to the pigs. <laughs> so that, that's what happens to Polonius, right? In this yeah. in this original story, and then the uh, uh, what's the third? The third is uh, 
uh, yeah, what is the third? What's the third in the uh, in the? Uh, oh, the third is the um, the the sword fight, I guess. Yeah, at the end, and th that happens as well in this story. But so, what I came to understand is that so that that feigning of madness went on for a long time, and so it was kind of a coming of age of the Amleth character, and like he was also like as he was in the filth he was um like making little hooks or something stakes yeah he was making stakes so, so that was um that was part of the way he was trying to show that he was mad is he would be making these pointy little stakes of wood in the fire i mean everybody thought well he's he's mad but that sort of gave him away as well because they they're looking at him doing this and he's like yeah this guy's he's he's using too much craftsmanship maybe he's not as mad as he makes out to be and then he ends up using those stakes long afterwards to uh, um, basically to stake down this net over all these um, drunken lords in the palace. And then he burns down <laughs> the entire palace at the end. Um, and then he kills and then he kills the king. So according to Greenblatt, at this point in Shakespeare's life, he kind of created a new technique and it started in Julius Caesar when Brutus is kind of trying to figure out like he's in this um, thought space. Uh, he was explaining how previously when some of Shakespeare's characters were like in their head and delivering kind of a monologue, it was a little wooden, but somehow he was learning at, at about the time he did Julius Caesar how to really convey this like interiority where the character's trying to figure something out and they're really split like um and but it's just one little scene in Julius Caesar and then he's saying in Hamlet that basically that's the space that Hamlet exists in is that it's kind of like he's really torn and trying to figure things out but he was also sharing that Shakespeare was um he wasn't spelling out motive anymore. Like logically, you could see why um, why uh, Amleth was feigning madness, right? Because mm -hmm. he's gonna, it's it's gonna eventually lead with those hooks to the you know the completion of the thing. Well, he's, but then, he, but he also he's feigning madness because he doesn't want the the king to suspect him, right? Like that's his right. that's his 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 prime motivation. But so, according to Greenblatt, Shakespeare starts to like just muddy things where, yeah. um, and that makes things a lot more compelling in the plays where you don't have like this clean motive where it does get kind of muddy. And so, like, I found a lot of that great, you know, to like in terms of so, like, the on the one hand, like SJ, you were saying that like this is like a cultural touchstone that everyone knows like all these different quotes and things. Um, but then on the other hand, like there's a depth there that I'd never really considered before until we started playing with this and, and like digging in deeper to like the actual language and then what the characters are actually doing. Yeah. I just, 
the thing about some different, I just want to throw a couple of things in here. Um, and just, I think this is a good time to just read some of these for everybody. So they understand the cultural touchstone. So this mortal coil, I think that's a band. What dreams may come. That's a movie with Robin Williams. Time out of joint to Philip Dick novel to thine own self be true. That's a, a, a spiritual phrase. that's popular, like a tw the 12 step uh, tradition. Uh, to be or not to be, we obviously know that. Murder Most Foul, a Bob Dylan song that was released in 2020 about the JFK assassination. The Undiscovered Country, I think that's a play, but it's um, A Hawk and a Handsaw, I think is also a band, another band. Wormwood has a whole thing about a star that is like an apocalyptic star. A Fellow of Infinite Jest, you already mentioned, Doug, that's the David Foster Wallace a novel. Dog Will Have His Day. Um, I think that's a, just a phrase, every dog has his day, maybe dog day afternoon or something in that. And then something is rotten in the state of Denmark is the classic, you know, kind of thing you tell people. It's like a euphemism for something's fucked up around here. So quickly did the points I just wanted to follow up on. So Agrippa, I just wanted to say this on the Shakespeare authorism debate. This is a very important thing because um, there's a lot of scholars and famous people all throughout the ages who disbelieve Shakespeare was a group of people. And I think I just wanna include that in this conversation without going into it too deeply. But the idea of protocol control, okay? This is the technology of its day, the printing press. I uh, like Bitcoin and we this is maybe where the Bitcoin comes in, but it's the technological protocols emergent in a given society and how they can be used to control and to map the movement and kind of the flow of that society. And so at this time, I think you have Middle English. It might be uh, uh, early, uh, late Middle English or something like this, but the alphabets are a little bit different. There's, but the, just my point here I want to make is that you're talking about if you are in control of these technologies, the invention of a language set um, can be so powerful. So language is a protocol. And yes, Shakespeare invented many new words in the English language. There was a codification of language that happens right around the time of Shakespeare that I think relates to the um, imperial kind of colonial uh, uh, intentions right, of Queen Elizabeth. Right, this right. is the Elizabethan era where you can now um, colonize vis-a-vis -a, -vis a language. So you can codify alphabets, you can make the language smooth. You even see it today as an English teacher all over the world, everywhere I go, it's part of empire, Western empire, English language schools. It's the lingua franca. So I just wanted to throw that in. There's a lot of evidence. This isn't a fringe theory at all of smartest people, some of the smartest people in existence that this is probably like Sir Francis Drake or others codifying a colonial protocol. And, and then the idea that Shakespeare is a part of that. And, and this the one thing there I want to mention is that you would use the extant stories, kind of like Star Wars and Marvel. That might be the, the, the filmic protocol of our era where you pull from the myths and kind of make these new stories that allow you to have this kind of colonial, controlling the myths, but then the exporting culture as a weapon. Um, and so other than that, I think those are the only, the major points of, oh, the Agrippa thing, I just wanted to say, um, yeah, there's clearly magical. The, whoever Shakespeare was had deep knowledge and profound knowledge of, of many languages, many cultures, occult history. I mean, these books were not widely available. They were only in the elite of the elite libraries. And that's the part of the evidence for Shakespeare as an elite group of culture uh, makers. Um, and I guess the, just sorry, the last thing I wanted to say was that I really see the influence in Dune. <laughs> I want to come back to that because you have like poison weapons in Dune. 
you have these sword fights, you have all uh, a whole host of things. And I think Hamlet was, is actually together in this. I do think he's using it as a cover, kind of like Paul Atreides. It's the cover that he's the Moab, Moadib, even though he still may be the Moadib, but he, it's still like he's in Atreides trying to revenge his dad and take back the emperor and take over the kingdom. And he's kind of using these stories about him as a cover and as a strategic cover. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to add a couple of things to uh, some of what you're saying, SJ, it's like, uh, um, so Hamlet comes out in, uh, well, it was written apparently in 16, 1601, and then it was first printed 1603, right? And then, so Shakespeare's writing from the first, his first play, it's like Henry, Henry VI, part one. It was written in 1591. And it's printed 1623, but he, he played it before that, I guess. So he's writing from 1591 to 1613. And so at the same time, this was coming out, and, and you're right, apparently he, he introduced like more than 20,000 words into, uh, into English throughout, throughout his plays. Um, but at the same time, all of his plays were coming out. Um, in 1611 is when the King James Version of the Bible is is uh is released right and it's and it's the same yep, thing yep. it introduced a, a lot of words in, in into english at the same time right um but then at the same time as shakespeare's happening in england uh we talked about this before it's it's cervantes, cervantes. It's Don Quixote in in uh, spain and then there's there's other movements like that in in uh, in france and other countries where their own um languages get an upgrade as well you know it's like that that was happening all over the place and so that that is an interesting part and then you have people like john d uh in england who were he was a magician and and an advisor a direct advisor a top advisor to uh uh queen elizabeth the first you know um yeah, 007. 007, yeah. There's a there's a whole circle of uh people like um who are into like a big circle of of hermetic people in England, even before Bruno came to visit, like uh Philip Sidney. Um there's a circle around him, and he was he was high up in the Elizabethan court as well. Um Spencer, like I think Spencer's a bit before that, you know. Um so yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. It's like the uh, the whole sort of hermetic dream of the um, Renaissance, which was sort of getting snuffed out in well, not even sort of. It was directly, definitely getting snuffed out in in mainland Europe. Sort of extended itself into England and continued on into the 1600s, um, where it didn't in other places. Um, like Bruno himself was was killed. Um, uh what new year's day 1600 um so so that's interesting all that all that history behind that is really interesting um and just to say the astrological tradition it follows the similar path where it settles in england and stays alive a little bit longer um there with people like william Lilly and others even isaac newton is an right. occultist and he's about 100 years after a lot of their 50 to 100 years after a lot of well, this francis francis so, yeah, really bacon like that's that um the main theory uh of there being a uh, another shakespeare is uh, it, 
people call themselves Baconians and they say, you no, know, it was Francis Bacon who, who yeah. did, who wrote Shakespeare's plays and also was involved in the, in, in the big committee that produced the King James version of the Bible. Um, um, so. And also Cervantes, Cervantes, because if you read that theory, they claim it's the same group that, because the translations into English is how that story became, um, it kind of popularized as, as far as I recall that that was, just, and it was a colonial strategy where you say, Oh, it's originally in your language, but then it's hugely popular in England with this kind of protocol project is what I was calling it. Um, this kind of, uh, so yeah, anyhow, it's, well, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, Esther, you like this as well. This is in Francis Yates talking about the, uh, the globe theater as a, as a memory system, basically like as, as a, so, Bruno comes into England and he talks to people like uh, Robert Flood. Robert Flood comes up with his own sort of uh, memory theater system. And, and then uh, Shakespeare directly incorporates that into the Globe Theater where all of his plays were performed. I and mean, we don't know exactly what it looked like because it, it, um, there's only some like uh, brief descriptions of it in places, but, but, this is interesting. It says, uh, there's one, um, this guy DeWitt, who was also in that sort of hermetic circle in England. And he was saying, uh, um, two such columns or posts, um, this is in the Globe Theater, can be seen on the stage in the DeWitt drawing. So he, he wrote a drawing of it support, supporting such a covering. Only the inner part of the stage was protected in this way. The outer stage can be seen in the DeWitt drawing was uncovered. It is known that the underside of this covering was painted to represent the heavens. In the Adams reconstruction of the globe, the ceiling of the inner stage cover is shown as painted with the signs of the zodiac, with some other vaguely arranged stars within the circle of the zodiac. Um, so naturally, this is a modern attempt to reconstruct the ceiling. No specimen of these painted theatrical, uh, theatrical heavens has survived. Um, but it, it's basically, um, it's a memory system where um, the whole globe was sort of, uh, the, the whole globe theater was sort of a split into um, 12 parts. Like it was, it, was, it was a circular theater and then it, it, it was arranged like a Zodiac. And, and then on the, on, the roof of the, uh, on the roof of the globe theater was the actual Zodiac and the stars. Um, and so somehow the globe, uh, the globe theater itself incorporated um all memory you know it's like a like a memory system in the sense of like uh bruno talks about um establishing in your mind a memory system and 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 incorporating all knowledge into it um so that so according to, to francis yates that's that's shakespeare's own conception of the globe theater which is just it's like mind-boggling <laughs> you know <laughs> uh. It was a mind-boggling 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Doug. Thanks, Norm. You bet. You've been listening to the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club, a production of SyncBook Radio on thesyncbook.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search Just type club in the links and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And now cracks a noble heart. Good night, sweet prince. <laughs>